The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. I was just actually studying this week. This is finals week for me in school, and and, uh, one of the classes that I took this term was on... I'm sure it's fine. (laughs) The guitars are cheap, right? Um, So uh, we were studying uh, finals week. Sam, you might want to wherever you went, you might want to come check this and make sure something else doesn't topple down. You won't distract me. Um, we're, we're studying uh, spiritual disciplines in one of the classes that I took, and, and one of the ones we focused on the most was on prayer. Oh, if you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up nice and high. We'll make sure that you get one of these. Um, so, so we've been studying this, and this week I discovered, like I thought I was done with this one particular class. I thought I had everything submitted, and at the last minute I found out that I had this uh, um, 11, or no, 10-page paper on the practice of prayer in the life of a spiritual leader due on Monday. But since we're leaving today right after church to go to this particular workshop, um, I had yesterday to get that done. We interviewed a a new potential elder at our church and a sermon to write. So yesterday was, oh, and my daughter tested for her black belt, which was awesome. So um, my daughter's now going to be in charge of the complaint and security department at Heritage Christian Fellowship. Um, but so it was a bu- it was a busy day, um, and but yet as I was reading yesterday and as I was studying um, for this paper and, and reading through some things that some people that have uh, walked with Jesus long before us had written, there, there was this one um, article in particular and one quote in particular. The name escapes me, um, but he was saying that you might have apparent success in ministry apart from par- from prayer. You might have apparent successes in life apart from prayer, but he said anything that we build in this life without a reliance on God through prayer is just a house built on sand. And I thought, oof, how many sandcastles have we built throughout the years? Or how, how many times have, have I made plans and, and done things and then at the last minute went, now, now God, will you please do the thing that I just did without your help whatsoever? And I definitely don't want to be guilty of that today. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, I pray that you would just move amongst your people even now as we open up your word. That, Lord, you would be our teacher. That, Lord, as the Anglicans of old prayed, Lord, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. And I pray that, Lord, you would grant us wisdom through your word, whether that be conviction for sin, comfort from pain, how to navigate situations, whatever it might be, God, I pray that your word would accomplish its purpose in its people, in your people today. And God, may we not be guilty of lording over your word, but may we be humbly bowed below it, Father. May you move in this place, may your spirit awaken souls and minds And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my King, my Rock, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to do verses 1 through 15 today. We are nearly finished with the book of Galatians. We have chapter 6 coming up. Um, We're almost done. The beauty of the book of Galatians and our time spent in it as a church collectively is that we should be in a place where we don't have gospel fog. 
Gospel fog is a term that's been thrown around a lot in different evangelical circles lately to describe the surprising inability that a lot of people have to be able to actually clearly articulate the gospel. You would be amazed how many people who have heard the gospel over and over and over struggle with articulating it and expressing it, or um, they express too much when they talk about the gospel. The gospel becomes sort of a a junk drawer where you throw in all sorts of things regarding to spirituality or Christian living that may be beneficial but aren't the actual gospel. Um, there's a man named Donald Whitney who I was actually studying just this week for that particular class, and, and he actually did an experiment with his church, and, and he gathered a group of people together, and he started polling them. He's like, how many times do you think in your life you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? And there were people in there, oh man, I grew up in church, I've heard it a thousand times, I've heard it a million times, I've heard it a million and one times, you know, all the one-up stuff that we all do. And everybody's there just like, yes, we've heard it over and over and over, and he was like, awesome. Uh, everybody take a sheet of paper. And here's a pen. Do me a favor. Write down for me this gospel that you've heard over and over and over a million times. And his quote was, the only thing more discouraging than the awkward silence that inevitably ensued were some of the things people actually wrote down. (laughs) It's amazing how we can be so familiar with something and yet so unfamiliar with it as well. And the implications of this are huge. I mean, if we're not able to really articulate the gospel, if we don't really know the gospel and aren't able to speak it, then how do we evangelize? How do we share the gospel with someone else when we can't even seem to put our thumb on what it actually is anyway? You can't share that which you don't know. Or what about Christian living in general? As we're going to talk about today, the gospel's not just Christianity 101 and then you move on to other things. I mean, we never leave the gospel. The gospel is how we are saved, but the gospel is also what sustains us as we live day after day after day. And so to not understand the gospel, to not be able to preach it to ourselves, leaves us woefully ill-equipped for the weeks that we go through. And then finally, just salvation in general, because the truth is there's a lot of people that can't explain the gospel because they've never experienced it, frankly. And so it's good for us to be able to eliminate gospel fog. And so the book of Galatians over and over and over and over, if it, if it sounds like it's the same sermon over and over and over, it's because it's the same sermon over and over and over. Paul is hammering home the clarity of the gospel. He's eliminating a shadow. And so he's just laying out the gospel, which is, one more time, that we have been created by a loving God, but in our sinfulness we have rebelled against him. We have walked away from God. We've chosen our own gods. We've sought fulfillment in other pleasures. We, we've said we will set our agenda above his. And as a result, we have set ourselves on a path, all of us, towards eternal separation and death apart from God. And we are hopeless to do anything about it ourselves. There is nothing we can do to bridge that gap. There is, it is impossible for us to live the type of righteous life that would be required. We are woefully inadequate and we all, as Romans says, fall short of the glory, the majesty, the holiness of God. And so we're helpless. And yet the gospel is that God then, seeing our need, has in the person of Jesus Christ injected himself into human history 
that on the cross, the wrath of all of our sin, all of that rebellion against God was poured out on Jesus, and we have been forgiven of our sin. We've been forgiven of our rebellion. We have been, if we have put our faith in Jesus and believed in him as God, we, we have been forgiven of all those things that have separated us from him. But even more than that, We've been forgiven from sin and then adopted into the family of God. So it's, it's no longer this, this distant relationship, but now we are in the families, joint heirs with Christ himself. God becomes our father. And then God is coming back one day to restore all things, that this faith that brings us into the family of God will become sight one day. And the sin that we wrestle with still will be gone one day. And the death and the failure and the cancer and the earthquakes in Nepal and all of the things that we see that continue to preach to us over and over and over, this world is broken, this world is broken, this world is broken, this world is broken, God is going to put all things back together. And that is good news. And more good news, we didn't do anything to receive that. We just believed in him. We just understood our failure and weakness and understood his reality of God and we just received it. Our only part is glad submission and worship. You you know, in, in biblical times, if a city was under siege by an army and if an invading army, let's say, was coming into our city, let's say Heritage isn't a church, it's a city with walls and everything, and we get word that an invading army is coming in, then our king, the king of our city, would gather together the military and they would march the military outside the walls of the city to go meet the enemy on the battlefield away from the city where the battle over our city would take place. And those of us here that weren't active in that battle, those of us that aren't in the military, we would sit back in our, in our city with the walls boarded up and we just wait. We wait. Now, If the king was victorious on the battlefield, before the whole army would even march back, as the king, as our king had defeated our enemy and secured our safety, they would send someone to bring a message of good news back to the city. And they were referred to as gospelers. They were heralds that came back to the city with the message, good news, our king has won, the enemy has been defeated, our safety is secure. And what would ensue from that would be a celebration. When the king would come back in, we would worship and we would celebrate and we would cheer. He's won, he's done it for us, long live the king. And there was nothing we did. We just enjoy the safety that the king has provided for us and we worship and celebrate his victory. But if the king wasn't successful, if the king left the city, went out into the battlefield and was defeated, if the enemy was winning, then they would still send someone back to the city, but it wasn't a herald or a good news. It was a military advisor. The military advisor would come back into the city and he would say, guys, there's more work to do. It's not going well. He has not secured our victory there in the battlefield. So here's what you need to do. You need to do this. We need archers up on the walls. We need to board up the windows. We need to put the women and children here. And there would be this list of things that need to be accomplished because our safety is not yet secured. We need to fight for it ourselves. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The gospel is that the victory has been won for us, not because we went out and fought real hard on our behalf, not because we did the to-do list that the military advisor came back. It was won for us while we simply waited, and all we have to do is receive the freedom that has been granted us and worship and celebrate the king that has secured our victory. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's the book of Galatians. Now, there's two great errors that we've been looking at as we've gone through this book regarding the gospel. Um, Error number one is that people hear that and they go, that's too easy. That's too easy. It can't be that easy, especially with all the things that we've done against God and our behavior and our continued failures. There's, we got to do more than that. It, it, that's too easy. So yes, Jesus died for our sins, and yes, there's grace, but we also have to do this, 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 this. It's what we've been referring to as Jesus plus something, that there's more work to be done. And usually what those things are, it's religious or moral behavior. So it's Jesus plus baptism, or Jesus plus tithing, Jesus plus church attendance, Jesus plus purity, Jesus plus you name it, moral behavior or, or religious activity, whatever the thing happens to be, we need Jesus' grace and we need to do these things, and if that whole package is intact, then we have approval and salvation and, and, and we can come before God because he approves of us. But Paul himself says in the book of Galatians, if anyone preaches a gospel different than the gospel I gave you of free grace, I don't care if it's an angel that comes down and preaches it to you. If anyone preaches a different gospel than the gospel I'm giving you, they are accursed, he says. Because Jesus plus anything else is no longer the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ has secured our victory. That's all. That's all. But the other error, which doesn't maybe happen as often, I think that's the one that we tend to wrestle with the most, um, especially those of us that, that have maybe grown up in religious environments. The, the other error is the pendulum swinging the other way, where people would say, you mean I did nothing to receive this grace, that, that Jesus loves me no matter what I've done, and even if I fail tomorrow, there's grace and forgiveness? Sweet, then I will do whatever I want. I, I can go out and get drunk tonight because tomorrow Jeff's just going to remind me of grace and what I do doesn't matter. And Paul would say, too, that's not the gospel either. J Jesus didn't set us free to spin us right back into selfish slavery and self motivated decisions and self worship and, and indulgence and all of those things in. in pure pleasures on and on and on. He has set us free for liberty. We're going to be talking about that for sure. But, but no one who understands the grace and mercy of Jesus and what he went through to set us free from sin would say, therefore, let me continue in sin. That when we know the gospel of Jesus Christ, then how, no, no one would respond to the gospel in that way. People who have experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus will respond in love for God and obedience to God. But, but the motivations matter. And that's what really we're going to be talking about today, because in Galatians 1 through 4, Paul's been pounding this thing home over and over and over and over. In Galatians 5, he's going to start to make the shift today 
Next week, we'll get into the next section, which starts talking about completely different things. Walking by the Spirit, chapter 6, will go into different attributes of Christian behavior, maybe how we should operate amongst one another within the church. Um, He's going to start turning sort of a corner on that, but today he's going to start that turn by talking about what our motivations are for living life by the Spirit, for being obedient, for loving one another. It's a question of motivations. And so what we're going to do, if you've never been with us before, we're going to read a little, and then we'll talk a little, and then we'll read a little more, and then we'll talk a little, and we're going to work our way through there. So um, let's read some, and then we'll talk in just a little bit. Verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now let's stop and talk. <clears throat> You're like, this is going to take forever. Now we're going to clump some stuff together later. But man, there, there's a few verses in the scripture that if you can get them, if the Holy Spirit, I should say, can awaken our spirit and our soul to an understanding and to the reality of some of these things, it, it changes everything for us. And, and for some of you, maybe this is going to be one of those kind of verses. The Bible says that for freedom, we have been set free. Now, I want to look at this in reverse. For freedom, we've been set free. So what is it that we've been set free from? What is it that the book of Galatians has shown us over and over what that we have been set free from? A few things. Number one, empty religion. Like just a passionless, joyless, kind of a mechanical to-do list. Just if I do this, check, do this, check, do this, check. Like there's religion and our relationship with God is based on just a to-do list. There's no real need for emotion or joy or passion. Just get the things done and you're fine. We've been set free from that joyless type of empty religion. Number two, fear-based behavior modification. We have been set free from this mentality that, that out of fear we need to do. And that's, that's probably, that's a huge one. Because in reality, most people, or at least I would say all of us at times, struggle in this area where we end up in seasons that we're doing things for God because or based out of fear. I need to change this. I can't be like this. It's kind of that idea that if we don't do this, we're going to get a spanking. And, and maybe for some of us, that could even be rooted in our upbringing to some degree. I, for myself, um, when, I, when I look back on my relationship with my father growing up, my, my father was a man who struggled greatly with patience. Um, thanks for that, Dad, because now I got that too, which is awesome. But, um, but when, when I look back on my relationship with my dad, honest truth is, it's hard for me to find times in my relationship with him, looking back, where I didn't feel like a frustration to him. Where I didn't feel like if I go to dad and ask for something, I need to phrase the words just right. I need to come at the right time. Is he tired? How was the day at work? Oh, today's not the day to ask. Or where my failures were a constant burr in his saddle. I mean, I felt like that all the time. So how much more would it make sense that I would feel that way with regards to the sovereign creator of the universe and my many failures before him? And yet, just as we sang, we have a good, good father. And the gospel sets us free from that because it says, look, when you are at your worst, it is his love for you that put Jesus Christ on the cross on your behalf. That as we talked about when we talked about adoption a few weeks ago, that he has enthusiastically chosen you. He doesn't just put up with you. It's not a thing where he put this gospel program together and you got in and he went, oh, I didn't think Jeff would make it. Shucks. But that he delights in us. 
And this mentality that God is just waiting for me to step out of line so he can squash me like a bug. And I better do this and I better live like this or he's always looking at me with this sort of frown face. Man, that is not the heart of God for those who are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. He delights in you. He loves you. He loves you. And that is such good news. Number three, he set us free from vain pleasures that cannot deliver Because for much of our lives, many of us have spent seasons of life just pursuing fulfillment and joy and pleasure and hope in things that cannot possibly fulfill the promises that they make. We've sought our own pleasure. We've sought pleasure in everything under the sun. And God has set us free from that vain, empty search where we put time and hope and maybe even years of our life into things that just return void. And he says, come to me. And then finally, we've been set free from being our own God. And, and while we, and that's right. And while, while few of us would ever say that that's what we're doing, few of us ever say, no, I, I don't believe in a God, I'm, I'm God. Few of us would say that, lots of us would live that way. Putting our own agenda first, making ourselves sovereign where we make our own decisions. We put our needs ahead of not just God's or scriptures, but other people around us. And and our own satisfaction, our own fulfillment becomes the driving force in everything else in life. It's a worship of self. And God said, Jeff, you don't have to be God because there is one. And he's way better at it than you are. Amen? And so... We have been set free from these things. But verse 1 says that we've been set free for a purpose. I think all of us would agree that, yes, we've been set free from sin. God has forgiven us. We've set, been set free. That's kind of a Christianity 101 understanding that most people agree with. But I think where we fall short is when we make the move from what we've been set free from to an understanding of what it is that we have been set free to. And in this verse it says, it is for freedom that you have been set free. We've been set free from something, from this constant battle to earn God's affection, this constant battle to make sense out of life, this constant fear that we live under, or this constant enslavement to things in the world that, can, that just constantly lie to us over and over. All you need to be happy is more sex. All you need to be, more, to be happy is more drugs. All you need to be happy is more money. All of these things that inevitably always fail to satisfy. We have been set free from all of those things. We've been set free for freedom's sake. But, but the idea is, go back to the adoption study, remember We've been set free from sin that we might then pursue a genuine and a real relationship with God. Because if we're constantly scared to death that we're about to get stomped on, or if we're constantly in fear that we have to do this, or he's frustrated with us or he's upset with us, then we never get to move into just enjoying God. And I think we forget that sometimes, that the biggest gift God has given us in Christianity is himself is himself, to enjoy walking with him, fellowshipping with him, praying to him, leaning on him, finding help and comfort and joy in him. That's what the Christian life is supposed to be. And for so many of us, we can never get there because we're still stuck in this performance-driven, fear-based, I have to do this kind of life. Paul says, no, 
God wants to set you free from that. God wants you to have freedom in here. And so we've been set free from that. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free, so stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying, so stand firm in your liberties. Stand firm in those liberties. Don't make the freedom and liberty that God gives the idol that then we fight over. The thing that Paul is calling us to stand firm in is the gospel. The gospel is what we stand firm in. The fact that God approves of us, that God loves us, that God has saved us, that God is coming again for us, that is what we are to stand on. And and this is kind of the paradigm shift that some of us need to make because too often, like I said before, the gospel is what gets us in the door and then we're looking to move on to other things. And, And that does not serve you. You never move on from the gospel. You make your stand in the gospel. And, and, and here's the reason why. So again, for some of you, you're constantly trying to earn God's favor, and it's exhausting. You don't know anything. When, when people, anything of the peace of the Christian life is what I mean to say. When, when people talk about having peace in Jesus, there are many of you, and I've had seasons like this in my own life, where our, our Christian life could be described by anything but the word peace. And it's exhausting. And God wants to set you free from that, and we do that by preaching the gospel to ourselves that reminds us over and over, the price has been paid, his favor has been given. While we were yet sinners, he demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is a past tense event that has already taken place that secures your position in Christ today. So we don't have to worry. We're, we're not going. Now, the reason we feel that way is because that's what we do. Our emotions and, and things for other people are all over the map. We have good days and we have bad days, but God is unchanging. And so his love for you is secure. And so you've got to know the gospel so that you can preach the gospel to yourself because you will, if you haven't already, if you're a new believer and you haven't gotten there yet, it's coming. Sometimes, New believers are the ones that exhibit the most joy in Christ, and a lot of times it's because they haven't learned a lot of the law yet. And then you start learning a lot of the rules, and you go, man, I'm glad I didn't know this when I got in. But, but God has set us free, and so we preach the gospel to ourselves during those times when our own heart, it's not God that's condemning us, it's our own heart that condemns us, and we have to have the ability to go, no, no, God's, God's pleased with me. The cross proves it. Also, others of you are are using Christianity or obedience to the law to make up for things that you've already done. So so like I said earlier, uh, go out and get drunk on Saturday night, then you get up Sunday morning and you feel guilty, so I need to go to church and worship extra hard and maybe I'll tithe a little extra. Like there's some sort of galactic scales that are out there that if we can do enough good things, it'll even them out and it just, it's not true. I mean, the gospel assures us of our failure The gospel also shows us, if you go into Isaiah and other passages, that even when we're nailing it, we fall dreadfully short. Like on our best day, the most righteous day we have ever had in our lives, God says those are filthy rags. It's not enough. But that's not condemning when you know the gospel. It's amazing when you know the gospel. Like he loves me that much. I'm that far from his glory, and yet he would send his son on my behalf? That's incredible. you got to preach the gospel to yourself when those things happen. But even with regards to obedience in general, 
Have you ever felt like the call of sin is just too much? Have you ever been struggling with a sin that you just feel weak and it won't go away, whether it's addiction or habits or whatever the thing might be, and you find yourself just weary. I must have this. This looks so good. I've got to have it. And, but the gospel says no, that trust him. If he would deal with our biggest need in the way, if he would go to the ends that he did to adopt us into the family, then can we not trust him? Can we not believe that God is for our freedom? Because that's what it feels like. At a certain point, you start feeling like God is some sort of galactic overlord and he wants to rob joy. I mean, this was Adam and Eve in the garden, was it not? Satan came to them, you can't eat of that tree? Why? Well, God said this, and what does Satan say? No, listen, God knows that if you eat of that tree, you're gonna be like him. And that's amazing. And he's, he's, what he's saying is he's withholding from you. And we buy into this. Even marketing and things on television buy into that. We have things that are sinfully delicious, decadent desires. Oh, this tastes so good, it can't possibly be healthy. You know, things like that, right? So the mentality can be that for me to follow Jesus, it means I have to give up freedom. Because freedom, by definition, we tend to, to define freedom as meaning I can do whatever I want. And, and then when we start to follow God and he starts to put convictions on our lives and says, Jeff, I want you to lay that down and I don't want you to go into that area anymore and, and this isn't gonna be part of your life anymore, we can start to feel like God's taking joy from us, right? But the gospel shows us, no, God is for us. God is for us. And these are things that want to enslave us or these are things, Jeff, that have fooled you in the past or I, have a, just, I just have a better plan for you. And so the gospel reminds us that God is for us. And so Paul says, stand firm in it. Don't return to slavery. Be it legalistic or licentiousness. Stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse two, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, I don't want to do too much work on this. If you're not familiar with the concept of circumcision, you can Google that later. But, but the idea is that circumcision was an outward indicator, an external evidence of who the people of Israel were. It was a marker given by God to the people in the Old Testament to show that they were children of the promise. And so here in Galatia, we have churches that were founded on grace, but people are coming in and saying, look, yes, grace is important, but you have to have these different external things too in order to be saved. So you have to have circumcision and you have to have this and this and this and this. And so this is what this was. It's, it's sort of an outside in religion. It's a marker that says, I'm in. It's a marker that says, I'm one of the chosen or I'm one of the favorite. And the Galatians are being told that this is what they have to do in addition to Jesus. But Paul tells them plainly, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, then Christ is of no advantage to you. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. This is what he's saying. If you believe that you will find favor and acceptance with God by taking on these external actions, then go for it. But listen, you're falling away from grace. 
You're taking matters into your own hands. Jesus is of no advantage whatsoever. You don't need a savior because you are now your own savior. But then he throws in, but hey, don't forget to do it all. Don't forget to do it all. Don't just pick one or two and say, I'm covered because I do this. Understand, you gotta do it all. Remember our analogy several weeks ago. If one person's in New York and the other person's in LA and we make a phone call, we're going old school now, guys, not satellites and stuff. We're going old phone lines now, okay? Um, Parents, explain it to your kids later. But if you're making a phone call, it doesn't matter how great and how intact all of those lines and cables are, if one of them is disconnected, none of it works. And so Paul's telling them, listen, um, if you're going to do this, if that's what you believe, that you have to do this and this and this in order to earn approval from God, then Jesus is an advantage to you. You don't need him. You are your own savior, but don't forget to do it all. And isn't it amazing? Like we can talk to people today, outside the church even, and say, how do you know that you're okay? Why do you think you're gonna go to heaven? And people say things like, man, I'm a good person. And they'll say, sometimes it's the silliest stuff. Like, I'm a good person. I've never killed anybody. And I'm like, well, I'm glad that's your standard line. That's good. Um, that does benefit us. I'm, I'm, I'm okay, man. I'm not this, and I'm not this. I don't kill anyone. I've never raped anyone. I've never stolen from a bank. I've never any of those kinds of things. And, and so we can have all those big, and especially the really visible, external visible sins. But what about things like coveting and jealousy, envy, not believing the best in others, criticizing and tearing down rather than building up, backbiting, anger, things of that nature, things, sins of the spirit like pride and jealousy and those sorts of things, even just plain fear and distrust in God that he's gonna provide for you. (laughs) You put those things on the list and we have a whole nother problem, do we not? And so Paul's saying, you got these people coming in, you need Jesus plus this, 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 and Paul's saying, okay, if this is what you're doing, then take it all. Don't forget to keep all of this. And and here's why he's saying this. Who could possibly bear that weight? Dads, you ever wrestle with your kids? You know, we let them kind of, they fight back against us and there's a little bit of struggle and they're giggling and laughing. But when we're wrestling with our kids, we might put a little bit of weight on them, but we're not, we don't just collapse on them, do we? My daughter, when she was sparring for her black belt test, is, is literally like sparring Taekwondo against Tim Davis, part of our church here. He's the, 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 the dojo or whatever. I'm sorry, Tim. I know that's not right. Whatever. The, he's the teacher. And so the master, the sensei, whatever it is. He's Mr. Miyagi. That's better. So, um, <laughs> so my daughter is sparring against him. And look, it's, it's black belt level tests. So, I mean, they're going at it. And he, he's not taking it easy on her at all. But she didn't feel the full weight of him. He's been doing this for 30, 40 years. He's a full-grown man. If he was to put the entire weight of himself, his strength, his weight on her, it would crush her. And guys, that's the law. If we try to take the full weight of the law and try to earn our own salvation and favor before God, there's no one that can stand under that. And Paul, in stronger language, says even more intense, you're severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And, and, and his whole thing is, why would you do that? This is why he says things like, I'm so perplexed by you. You must have been bewitched. How could you take this spirit on? Like, what is wrong? He doesn't understand because who would walk away from grace? I mean, 
When you start taking on this external level of spirituality and Christianity, you're having to hide failures and you're having to make up for failures yourself. But, but grace acknowledges our faults and failures. There's no need to hide them. It's part of the equation. Grace is aware that we blow it. Grace is aware that we're not going to make it. Grace is aware we're going to continue to fail. The beauty is, is that grace, as it acknowledged, it covers. And the law can't do that. The law points out failures and says, pay up. You better deal with this. There's a problem here. It needs to be fixed. And the law itself is a diagnostic. It has no ability to fix the problem. It's just going to condemn. And it's just going to keep pointing out this something's wrong. Something's wrong here. And so Paul's saying, when you understand the reality of grace, who would walk out from under that and go back to the kind of condemnation that a legalistic life provides? He goes on in verse 6 and says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And this is the pinnacle, if you will, of this section. He says, guys, the external behavior, the fear-based, I've got to do these things, none of it matters when it all boils down. When we're talking about the gospel, our salvation, our approval before God, Circumcised, uncircumcised, doesn't matter. Murder, non-murder, doesn't matter. Virgin at marriage, non-virgin marriage, none of those things enter into the equation. They gain you no advantage whatsoever. This is why Isaiah says, on your best day, you're woefully far from the glory of God. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of those things earn us anything with God. But... Only faith working through love. And and this should end pride and backbiting in all of us. Because he says, look, it's it's not your work that does this. As Ephesians is going to go on to say too, this is the end of pride. This is the end of division. This is the end of backbiting because we realize we've just been given a gift. There's nothing to brag for. There's no comparison games to play with one another. We have received grace by faith through love. And then, and this is incredible, look at verse 7. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, think about this. Paul says, you were running well. In other words, you were living this Christian life. You were obedient. You were nailing it. You were doing really well. And then he says, who hindered you? Something changed. They were running well. They're not in obedience and running well now. What's the difference? What's the thing that happened that Paul's calling out here? The difference is, is that now they're trying to earn God's favor. Their, their motivation in obedience to the law has changed. And once that motivation changed, Paul is saying it is now impossible for you to walk in obedience. The thing that prevented them from being obedient to God was that they were through their obedience trying to earn God's favor. And Paul says, right away you've missed the entire point of the law and it will never get you where you're trying to go. The motivation alone changed even their ability to be obedient before God. Bottom line, they got religious and they missed the purpose of the law, which means they're not obedient to it. This is what he says. If fear is your motivation, so if your motivation in being at church today is because you're afraid that God's going to be angry with you if you're not, then you've got to know that this will, you're not being obedient to the spirit of the law. You may have the letter nailed, 
as many of the Pharisees did in that day, but the spirit of the law is to bring us into actual relationship and fellowship with God, not to have another thing to check off our to-do list. It's not just to avoid God being angry with us. And Paul says to them, the motivation that you have is preventing you from being obedient. So hear me on this, and I'm begging you here, hear me here, please. The paradigm that Galatians presents between law and grace is very clear and very significant. Amen? But what he's trying to say, Galatians is not teaching that because we have grace, we ditch obedience. That's not at all what Galatians is teaching. What Galatians is teaching is motivation for obedience matters and changes everything. He says, only, what was it in verse six, only faith working through love. When we are operating in fear-based religion or man-centered, effort-driven religion, it is impossible, no matter how many commandments you're keeping, it is impossible to be obedient to the law because we are called to live in a relationship with God through faith that is based on love. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you try in your efforts to obey in order to earn God's favor, you will never get there. You will always fall short. It will never bring you there. And the, the, the idea is this. It's not that he's saying, we've been saved by grace so Christians never change and Christians don't have to be obedient or any of that kind of stuff. We said it last week. It is expected that followers of Jesus would actually do what? Follow Jesus. Follow his teachings, follow his examples, live as Jesus did. That's what's expected. The difference is the motivation and heart behind it. It changes everything. It changes everything. When you believe the gospel and you understand the love and grace that God has poured out on you, your, your natural heart reaction will be love for God. And I'm telling you right now, if you love God, you don't have to worry about the obedience part. It's going to come naturally. And it's going to be different. I mean, think about it. How many of us go to work during the week, slave away at jobs, you work hard, you're trying to earn your paycheck, impress the boss, earn the next promotion, whatever the case may be, but the work is often what? Begrudging, looking forward to the weekend. We're doing it because we have to, but we sure can't wait till retirement. But then how many of those same people go home on the weekend and joyfully will spend the entire weekend maybe building a tree house for their kids? or serving their wife, or when they find that someone that's dear to them is sick, they wanna make a meal and carry that to them, and, and wanting to work in order to serve those people. Isn't it different? It's not begrudging, it's loving. Honestly, there's a lot of times I hate mowing my yard and I've found joy in mowing my neighbors. It's silly, but it's true. And that's the idea. Love is to be the motivating factor in all that we as Christians do. And if we understand the gospel and ignore the legalistic tendencies, the sinful imprisonment, and understand the reality that Jesus died for our sins, set us free, and allow our heart to be open to the truth of the gospel, obedience will come naturally. But if you get the cart before the horse, and if you focus on but I gotta teach obedience because I don't want my kids to get into these different things and we don't teach them the gospel too, then we are guaranteeing then that they can't possibly be obedient and that they will struggle and they will never understand the heart God has for them. The law itself will never draw them into that close relationship that God desires. And Paul's saying here, your motivations matter. And he says in verse eight, 
this persuasion is not from him who calls you. So, so this, this, you have to do this to please God, Paul's saying, by the way, that's not a call from God. That voice that says you have to do this or God's going to be angry is not God's voice. Please hear me say that. That voice that we all hear at times, I've got to do this or God's going to be angry, is not God's voice. What do the scriptures say? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. All the anger that God has towards us and sin has already been poured out on Jesus Christ. There's none left. None So that voice that says, God's mad at me, that's not God. Well, who is it, Jeff? Well, Paul's already said, didn't he? That the people that have formed into this legalistic mindset, he said they are unknowingly returning to service to demons, is what he says. Because I'll tell you right now, I am completely convinced that Satan would love to keep all of us really obedient in fear-driven morality. Satan would love to make us keep thinking that we better do this and we better do this and we better do this because the last thing in the world Satan wants us to understand is the love of Jesus. If he can keep us preoccupied with service, then he can keep fueling this fire that says God's not really for you, he's angry for you, and he can keep you away from God's heart. And so Paul's saying that voice in the back of your head that says God is angry at you or you better not or he's gonna squash you, that's not God's voice at all. And if that wasn't all heavy enough, now Paul's really going to get serious. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed, and now maybe in what is maybe uh, the most aggressive and maybe the most shocking verse in the entire Bible, he says in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's inspired by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) The Holy Spirit says to Paul, say this, I wish those who are troubling you would emasculate themselves. And, and hear the context of what he's saying. He's already said, if you're, gonna, if you're taking the law route, if that's what you're doing, remember to keep it all. And then he says here, and a little leaven is going to leaven the whole lump. Jesus plus anything, no matter how little or insignificant it might seem, it's going to ruin the whole thing. And he says, and so these people that are saying, you've got to do this and this and this to have peace and to have grace and to have relationship with God, if they're saying, and I'm trying not to be graphic here, you can explain it to your kids later, if they're saying, just cut the end part here and do this little part here, he's saying, just chop the whole thing. If that's what you're going to do, if you're going to say, this is what we have to do, then just do the whole thing, or maybe at least the result would be they can't reproduce. But These words are put here intentionally to erase emotion and to cause shock and to see this so that we would understand God really means this. This is a serious situation here. This is how God feels about us and it doesn't take much legalism for us to drift into fear-based religion. It doesn't take much. It's so subtle and it comes naturally to us. And God is saying, you're my child, I want you to be free. But 
lest we go too far and say, all right, then we do whatever we want, and Paul has now given us a blank check to live in unbridled freedom. He says in verse three, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He says, be careful. Like, just as we can make sort of a mantra, if you will, of our church, we have to do this, and the law, and the law, and behavior, and, and heritage is awesome because we don't do this, and this, and this, and this, and heritage is awesome because we do this, and this, and this, and this. In the same way, you can swing that pendulum too far, and man, this was Martin Luther's quote, remember? The world is like a drunken man trying to get on a horse. You pop him up on one side, he falls right back off the other side. Like, it's this constant pendulum swing, and he's saying, be careful, because you can push away from this legalistic mindset and be like, freedom! And now, all of a sudden, over here, you're clinging more tightly to freedoms than you are God. You're missing opportunities to love one another. You're becoming completely self-absorbed in your freedoms. And anything that you're holding to that you can't lay down for someone else is no longer a freedom for you, but it's a weight. And he's saying the end result and the goal is this, that through love, and he used that same language, that love through faith, through love serve one another. Straight into verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And this is what we close with. Religion will always set us against one another. Fear-based, performance-driven, I gotta do this, I gotta keep the law to make God happy. Whether we understand it or realize it at the time or not, it always sets us against one another. And it creates an environment where your successes are a threat to me and your failures are a boost. So in other words this, if my performance is what earns God's favor, then I'm naturally in comparison with one another in this room. Because as I see people doing well, man, look at that guy. He is like worshiping. His hands are lifted. He is singing from the top of his lungs, man. Oh, look at that guy. He looks so spiritual. And I instantly feel what? Not quite so spiritual. That's a threat to me. But when I hear someone failed, well, at least I'm not that guy. I mean, I may have some of the things wrong, but I'm at least ahead of the rankings over this guy right over here. And that becomes a boost for us. And that's what religion does. This is why the Pharisees were the way they were. I mean, they get to the point that they won't even walk through the market with their clothes flowing freely. They're like pulling their robes around because they don't even want to touch someone who is a sinner, and they became these whitewashed tombs, all polished on the outside, projecting that perfected experience, or excuse me, that projected exterior to everyone else. They look so holy and so obedient. And then what does he say? But on the inside is dead men's bones, dead, decaying, empty religion. But what the gospel does is it sets us free from that to be able to enjoy and celebrate the grace of God in one another. There is no, I don't have to worry about comparison with you because I've been saved apart from performance anyway. It's just a gift. It's that no one should be boasting in this. And so rather than picking people apart and looking for reasons to adjust myself in the rankings, I get to just celebrate what God is doing in the lives of other people, to pray for other people that they might experience the same grace and to adopt the heart of God towards everyone else. And Paul says, be careful if you're gonna bite one another, you're gonna devour one another. And it doesn't take much reading into Jesus' life himself that we see over and over and over that there is a desire for love, humility, and unity within the church. That's what we are designed for. 
I mean, those of you that grew up in the church, how many examples can you think of through the years where we saw horrible backbiting and tension and comparison and finger pointing within the walls of the church? And Paul's saying, don't let that be. The church is a blessing to us. We have been given the gift of one another to help one another grow, to find grace and comfort and prayer and support. The gospel means we are for one another because God is for us. But religion means a comparison game and this Christian hierarchy and I've got to be better than that and that guy's doing that. Oh man, now I got to do that probably because maybe he knows and it's exhausting and it's tiresome and it puts brother against brother. It achieves no unity and it eliminates the benefit of the church in our lives. So Paul's saying, listen, just get the basics. By grace, through Christ, you've been set free. You've been set free from religion You've been set free from comparison games. You've been set free from backbiting. You have been set free to love and serve and care for one another. He's going to move forward from now in the weeks ahead to talk about walking in the Spirit and how the Holy Spirit does these things, what the fruit of the Spirit looks like in the church. He's going to talk about even when sin comes up, we correct one another, but in humility, desiring to restore one another and even considering ourselves, lest we also fall in the same way. It's a completely different mindset, and you'll never get there through the law apart from grace. And I'm telling you right now, that's what makes the church beautiful. Because every other organization out there has all the backbiting. Our businesses, all of those sorts of things, climbing the ladders and trying to get ahead of the pack. But the church is to be different. The church is a family with a good, good father that understands the failings of one another, that overlooks them to some degree, if you will, that at least for shows acceptance because we've been accepted by God. Corrects, we'll get to that, absolutely. But in grace and in humility and in love, And that's the kind of church God desires to build. He says, be careful. If you shoot for anything else, be careful that it doesn't devour you. And sadly, there's people, man, there's people all over the place. We know them. There's some of you in here. You're here, but you're not excited to come to church because you've had what we refer to as bad church experiences where you've been burned. You don't trust churches anymore. You don't trust church people anymore because you've been through some of those kind of things. Me too. Some of you are having, as I always say, a bad church experience as we speak. (laughs) But here's the reality, man. The gospel of Jesus Christ is to set us free from those things, to keep our eyes on him. And may that happen here, amen? Will you stand and pray with me? We're gonna close in song. God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your love and the acceptance that you've poured out in your people. And I pray, God, even right now as we just sing this last song, will you just give us this moment, Lord, that we can reflect on the beauty of your grace. Lord, to be able to realize the things that you have set us free from in our own lives. God, I pray that for everyone in this room, for this next five minutes, God, will you free us from the comparison games and the criticisms and the ridicules and the finger pointing, the backbiting, the pain. I pray, God, that you would just give us, Lord, this time that we might once again reflect on the purity of your grace and your gospel. Might we worship you for it. And I pray, God, that you would continue to mold and shape your church into your image. That we might 
live obedient lives motivated by love and show grace to one another when we fail. But Lord, I also can't help but pray, Lord, as we see the things going on in the world around us from terrorism to tragedy. Lord, we're we're tired of this flesh. We're tired of sin. We're tired of these battles. And so God, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, you have saved us from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, but God, will you remove the presence of sin? Will you return to your kingdom? Lord, for the day that we get to watch you come through the gates of our city and lift our hands in the air and and say, Hosanna, our king has arrived, and to be able to celebrate that victory, God, we so look forward to that day. But may we live in that vein now, celebrating the forgiveness and grace that you've given us. So God, may you minister to your people even as we sing. Guys, as we close in this song, I'm gonna ask the elders and huddle leaders will be available in the back. And even after the service is over, if there's areas in your life that you just need prayer for, if there's things you're still struggling with, you feel like, I don't feel freedom. You talk about freedom, I don't feel freedom. Will you come to the elders? Will you come and receive prayer and let us talk with you? If you don't know Jesus, if you've never given your heart to him, if you've never accepted the gospel, if you have no idea what what eternity is going to look like for you, will you please, I'm begging you, go back, receive prayer. Even after we dismiss, they're going to be back there hanging out for just a little bit more. Go receive prayer. And for the rest of us, may we with joyful, loving hearts just worship Jesus for the grace that he's poured out on us. In Jesus' name. Me for